Well, you can go ahead and get your sermon notes out. I'm just going to pray. Lord, we bless the reading of your word today. I thank you for it. Lord, I thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that it is the inspired word of God. And so right now in the name of Jesus, we place ourselves beneath the authority of your word. And we pray that you'd use it to transform us more into the image of your son. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Uh, when I was young, I played a lot of hockey, you know this, and I played in some Auckland teams uh, growing up, and I made one year a team, uh, an Auckland under-15 development team. And when they say development, what they really mean is it was a B team, right? So we were in the Auckland under-15 B team, but we were quite a good B team. There were two girls in that team who'd go on to play for the Black Sticks. And so even though we were a B team, we got invited to the A team tournament. And uh, we did really well. We did actually better than the Auckland A team. We got all the way to the semi-final. We were playing Waikato and it was nil all late into the second half when all of a sudden they got a penalty corner. And I remember I wasn't involved in the penalty corner. I was running back where I distinctly saw one of their girls trap the ball with their foot. This isn't soccer. This is hockey. You're not allowed to do that. Trap the ball with their foot and push it into the goal. And I thought to myself, that is clearly a foul. That's not going to be a goal. I start running to get the ball when all of a sudden I see the umpire signaling that it's a goal. You need to understand that I am a competitive human being. I don't believe in playing games for fun. I believe in playing them to win. That's the only reason I'm playing a game is to be victorious. And so I go mental. And you got to understand, I was like quite... Little, a little 14-year-old, probably my voice. No, it was probably the same pitch. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't happen to girls, does it? You know? Anyway, so I was this, exactly the same pitch as I was right now. And I was screaming. I was angry. I was yelling at the umpire. It hit her foot. It hit her foot. And so the umpires have a conference. They go to the middle of the field. They have a little conference discussion. And I think surely the truth will come through. Surely justice will prevail. And they will call it a no goal. And I need you to know that in that game, justice did not prevail. I see them signaling a goal. We lose 1-0. We don't go through to the final. We have to play the worst game in the history of sport, which is the third and fourth playoff. No one wants to play for the bronze medal. I'm telling you right now. And I was distraught. How many people know it matters what you see? It matters what that umpire saw. For my little Auckland team, what that umpire saw was the difference between winning and losing. It was the difference between us playing in the final and us playing in the little third and fourth playoff. It matters what you see. But more than it matters what you see, have you noticed that it matters how you see? What you see is vision how you see is perspective. How you see is the way you interpret what you see. Have you ever noticed that your attitude can change, not because the circumstance changes, but by how you adjust how you perceive the circumstance? It matters how you see. In fact, psychologists say that the shift between a positive mindset and a negative mindset is as simple as shifting three things. The first thing is your physicality. Did you know today that if you stand up straight, throw your shoulders back, you're going to start feeling better about yourself. 
Did you know that they actually did an experiment in which they got a group of people to stand defeated and another group to stand literally like superheroes? And afterwards, they tested the blood of both groups. The group who were standing victorious, listen, their blood reflected that they felt victorious. There was literally chemical differences. It matters how you stand. That's why worship's powerful. You stand up. You lift your eyes to the Lord. You raise your hands. You throw your shoulders back. It shifts your attitude. A shift also in focus that can shift you from negative to positive, what you're zeroing in on, what you're looking at. And finally, the thing that can help shift you from a negative to a positive mindset is a shift in the way you interpret your story. That's about perspective. That's about how you see. Have you ever noticed that it matters how you see when you're going through suffering? It matters how you see when you go through hard times. How you perceive your circumstance can be the difference between it building your faith or eroding your faith. How you see what you're walking through can be the difference between you walking through the valley of the shadow of death or you getting stuck in the valley of the shadow of death. It matters how you interpret hard times. And to prove it to you today, I'm going to take you to the book of Job. Job is a very unique book in the Bible. Uh, Job himself, this character, is not even an Israelite. He is a Gentile or a non-Jew. And actually, the entire cast of characters in the book of Job are non-Israelites. It's set in a place called Uz. And I didn't really need to tell you that. I just wanted to say Uz because it's quite fun to say. And Uz was a very, very far away from Israel. Uh, there is evidence that this book, the book of Job, is one of the first books ever enacted in the entire Bible. In fact, if you want to know where it sits historically, think around Genesis chapter 10, around the time of Abraham. That is when we're talking that Job took place, one of the oldest books ever recorded in the entire Bible. And it's quite a long book, and I'd encourage you to read it, but it kind of looks like this. The start of Job is two chapters which are in prose or story language, narrative. And then there's an epilogue, a couple of chapters at the end, which are also in prose or story language. And then there is about 30 or 40 chapters all the way in the middle, which describe a conversation that Job has between himself and his friends, and then himself and God, and all of that is in poetry. And what they're talking about is the why of suffering. Let me tell you that it encourages me this morning to know that one of the first biblical books ever enacted discussed the same question that you and I battle with today. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? Why does tragedy and trauma befall us? It's encouraging for me to know that in one of the first books of the Bible, that was the subject for discussion. And what Job and his friends are discussing is why Job is suffering. Why has such tragedy befallen Job? And that's what makes this book so emotionally resonant for us today. It's discussing a question that week to week, sometimes day to day, is on the lips of both you and I. What I want to show you from this book in the perspective 
of Job and his friends is a principle. This is the principle. Limited perspective produces accusation. In the life of both Job and his friends, their limited perspective produces accusation. Let me break it down. Firstly, Job's friends. Job's friends believe that God is just. They believe that God runs the world in accordance with divine justice. And what they perceive that is, is that the wicked suffer and the righteous prosper. That's what they believe divine justice looks like. And so in their mind, they think God is just. God runs the world according to divine justice. Job is suffering. Therefore, Job must be a sinner. Notice that with their limited perspective, their limited information, their limited understanding on the topic, what it produces is an accusation of Job's conduct. They say because he is going through this, therefore he must have done something to deserve it. This is what it says in Job 4 verse 7 to 8. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. What they are doing is accusing Job of doing something that has put him in the situation that he is in. Their limited perspective has produced accusation. Actually, later in the book, they literally start suggesting sins to Job that they believe he could have committed. And I'm asking the church this morning, can we please not be like Job's friends? It is very easy for us to look at this episode and judge Job's friends. They are cruel. They are uncaring. They are unkind. Job needs to get better friends. But I want to submit to you today that we offer the same accusations to one another. We just change the phrasing. Instead of saying, your sin did this, we say things like this. What lesson is God trying to teach you through this circumstance? If you stopped doing this, do you think that God would shift your season on? Maybe if you did this, this never would have befallen you. And I, I know there's a bit of conviction in the room because every single one of us have said that sort of thing to one another. And I'm not saying that our circumstances are never the result of poor decisions that we make. Sometimes they are. But what I am going to say is this. I do not ever want to call sin that which God calls innocence. Because when God turns up on the scene, he completely validates Job's innocence. He completely validates Job's uprightness, his blamelessness. May the church hear the story today. May we be slow to offer judgment. May we be slow to offer accusation. May we be slow to offer advice that is actually condemnation. Come on, somebody, in disguise. May we be fast to offer compassion. May we be fast to offer grace. May we be fast to offer absolute embrace and love. May we not, come on somebody, be like Job's friends. 
May we not fall into the camp of our limited perspective, come on, producing accusation. When God turns up, actually, He deeply rebukes Job's friends. This is what it says, Job 42 verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, He said to Eliphaz, who was one of the friends, I am angry. I am angry with your two friends because you have not spoken, get this, the truth about me. Friend, when you peddle accusation, it is not your own reputation that you are misrepresenting. Come on, somebody. It's the reputation of God. I'm going to leave that there because we'll let that settle for today. Limited perspective produces accusation. You can see it in Job's friends, but you can also see it in Job. Job's argument looks slightly different. Job says this. He says, I'm, I'm innocent. I'm innocent but I'm suffering. So therefore, God must not run the world according to divine justice or worse, perhaps God isn't just. And this argument, I'm not gonna do it by a show of hands, but is incredibly, incredibly relevant to us today. Because who hasn't, when walking through trials and suffering, prayed prayers like this, God, do you even love me? God, do you even hear me? God, are you even close to me? Are you close to the broken hearters such as me? This is not just Job, friends. This is us. I'm going to give you an example. Job says this. He says, know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, There is no justice. And Job is actually on an emotional roller coaster in this passage. He thought that God was just, and yet he can't reconcile his own suffering with what he believed about the nature of God. And so in some outbursts, he accuses God of various things, and yet in other times, he holds fast to God's promise. In fact, the same chapter that I quoted earlier is the same chapter that we find this famous verse. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. Plenty of worship songs have been written from that verse. No worship songs have been written by the preceding one. You see, in the same chapter, Job is oscillating between doubt and grapple and then extreme declarations of faith. And I don't know if you've done this, but I certainly have. In the same prayer going, God, why are you far from me? Why are you not close to me? And yet going, but I hold to your promise, but I stand on my truth, but I acknowledge your kindness, but I know you're chasing after me. This oscillation, friend, this is us. And the reason why that's so exciting is that you need to know that when God arrives on the scene, God never rebukes Job for his struggle. He never rebukes Job for his struggle. Doesn't mean that God agreed with everything that Job said. At times he's called God a bully. He's deeply, deeply grappled with God's justice. Doesn't mean that God is affirming what Job is saying, but he's approving of his struggle. He's approving, get this, of the fact that Job is willing to say it. He's approving of the fact that Job is bold and brave enough 
to go before God with all of his emotion, with all of his pain, with all of his brokenness, with all of his protest. He's affirming, he's affirming the struggle. Friend, you need to understand this about walking through hard times. You don't need to walk through them with a smile on your face. You don't need to come into church skipping down the aisle. God's not approving of the fact that you are covering up your pain. No, no, no. God approves of the believer who is willing to bring all of their journey before the Lord in the context of faith and say, Lord, I believe in you, but I'm struggling. I believe in you, but this is hard. I believe in you, but suffering is bad and evil is evil. Listen to me. And it will be expelled when Christ comes again in glory. You and I, get this, we battle against evil and suffering the same way your body battles against a foreign body that tries to invade your system. We don't accept it. We protest against it. We reject it because we know that evil and suffering will not be with us when Christ comes again in glory. The biblical word for this, guys, is lament. That's the biblical word for what I'm describing. You need to know today that there are just as many psalms of lament in the book of Psalms as there are psalms of thanksgiving and praise. I heard it phrased like this. God gave us as many words to write a praise report as he did to write a complaint form. And this is strange for us because when we come into church, you know, it'd be, it'd be odd to see Uncle Jay get up the front and be like, come on church, stand to your feet. I'm going to sing a song. God, are you even mindful of me? Do you even hear me when I call? I'm not really sure that you're thinking of me. Am I a friend of God? Just wouldn't hit the same, would it? And yet the book of Psalms has psalm after psalm after psalm of struggle and grapple. Friend, you don't need to put a smile on your face to come into this house. You don't need to tie everything up and pretend that you're full of joy when actually you're going through some struggle because actually your praise and worship in the context of your pain, your lament in the context of faith is just a valid a form of worship as your thanksgiving is. Lament is the voice of faith that is grappling with pain and we need to be comfortable doing both. You can clap your hands, church. See, Job's limited perspective has also produced accusation, but God never, God never rebukes Job for that. But when Job, God finally does arrive on the scene, it's unsurprising that what he tries to do is widen Job's perspective. Uh, God comes at the end of the book to talk to Job directly, and he challenges his perspective. And he does it by taking Job on like a tour of the universe. He shows Job that God has his eyes on all the cosmic details of the world that Job himself has no idea about. And if you want to read anything from the book of Job after this message, let me encourage you to read Job 38 because it's stunning. And I'm going to read a, a portion of it for you. This is God to Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions, surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it, 
on what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. See, what God is doing is he's widening Job's perspective. See, if Job and his friends' limited perspective produced accusation as God widens Job's perspective, what he gives him is an invitation to trust. See, Job has been asking God for the reason why he is suffering. God is given, giving Job the reason to trust God through his suffering. See, the maddening thing that you need to understand about the book of Job is that God actually never answers the why question. God never comes down and says to Job, this is the reason why you're suffering. Instead, he says this to Job. He says, look up, look around, look at the miracle of the universe that I have created. This is what he's saying. He says, look at the millions of reasons that I have given you to trust me through it, even if you don't know the reason for it. Essentially, what's happening is that God is showing that there is a deeper assumption that is inherent in Job and his friends' understanding. They are claiming that they have the knowledge, the wisdom, the information, and the perspective to know what it is to run the world justly. Essentially, Job and his friends are claiming to be able to do what God does. And God gives Job and his friends a reality check. He said, did you set in motion the seasons? Do you command the tides? Are you the one who breathes out stars? Do you set a clock by the time which fruits will fruit, which buds will flourish? Can you coordinate the world so that all living creatures are provided for? And if you can't, why are you assuming the knowledge or the ability to run the world justly? Essentially, what God is giving Job and his friends is like the ancient Near East version of what in 2021 we would say, sit down. Sit down, Job. You're human. I'm God. You be human and I'll be God. I'll be the God of good even when you don't see it. I'll be the God of wisdom even when you don't know it. I'll be the God of understanding that is so much higher than yours. And so why don't you just let me be God and you be you. See, the truth is, is that we don't need to know the reason for it. We don't need to know the reason why it's happened because God has given us enough reason to trust him through it. Let me tell you why. Because I can see Jesus in it. And if Daniel would like to join me on the keys, I want to finish with this. One of the things that you might not notice about the book of Job is that the first two chapters are set up to parallel Genesis 1 and 2. They're deliberately set up to parallel Genesis 1 and 2. Let's think about it for a second. There is an accuser in the throne room in Job, like there is a snake in the garden in Genesis. Uh, both Adam and Job are described as upright and blameless, not sinful men. Uh, they are both set a test. Adam is told that if he eats the fruit, 
then sin will enter the world. But Job has also set a test. The enemy says if he suffers, he will curse God. And both have a wife who is unhelpful to their cause. Eve offers Adam the fruit. And in the book of Job, it says that Job's wife tells him to curse God and die. These chapters are deliberately set up to echo one another. And what the author of Job wants us to see is that Job is being set up almost as like a second Adam. But the difference is this. Where Adam failed the test, Job 1 and 2 is at pains to tell us that in all this, Job did not sin. It is at pains to tell us that he did not sin in the way Adam sinned. In fact, Job is set up as an Adam who passed the test, but get this, suffered anyway. Job is the innocent sufferer. He is what we'll find out later, the righteous intercessor. At the end of the book, Remember I told you that God was angry with Job's friends. And Job's friends were meant to be representatives of the nations that surrounded us. And God gives those friends an interesting, an interesting instruction. He says to them he's angry at them. And so therefore they should go to Job. And Job will pray for them in order that they may receive mercy. The man who passed the test, yet suffered anyway, so that the nations could receive mercy. Do you see it? It's Jesus in Job. The whole story of Jesus recorded in one of the first biblical stories ever enacted. It's Jesus in the book of Job. And this is important because if I can see Jesus in the suffering of Job, perhaps that means I can see Jesus in the midst of my suffering. And if I catch sight of Jesus, I catch sight of hope. The Bible says that while Job is praying for the friends, while Job is praying, I want you to notice that Job's friends came to Job while he was still suffering. Can you imagine this for a second? Job is not healed yet. He's still on the ash heap, as it were, when all of a sudden a group crowd around him asking for him to pray for them. A group who have accused him, a group who have betrayed him, a group who he feels deeply disillusioned with, come to him and ask him to intercede for them, and he does. And the Bible says that while he was praying, while Job was interceding for them, they received mercy. But get this, Job received restoration more than what he lost at the beginning while he was interceding. You see, if I can see Jesus, I don't just see a Savior who's stuck in the grave. I don't see a Savior who is stuck in transgression. I don't see a Savior who is locked in iniquity. I see the 
I can see hope. I pray today that you are seeing Jesus in the midst of your suffering. I pray that you're setting your sights on a Saviour who suffered for your iniquity, who was pierced for your transgressions, but by His stripes we are healed. With every eye closed, every head bowed, perhaps you came in today and you felt trapped in your suffering and your sin and your brokenness. I have good news for you. There is a solution and there is a Savior. It is not of your own effort or of your own making. Jesus joined you in the midst of your pain so that you could join Him in His resurrection. And He's here to offer newness of life to you today because you were created for life, truth, abundance, and wholeness. And that is what a relationship with Jesus offers you. And so if you here in this place and you're saying, I've gone my own way and it doesn't work. I've tried the road of sin and it's a broken road, but today I'm seeing a Savior who meets me there to raise me to new life. If that's you, I'm going to count to three and raise your hand. One, two, three. If that's you, raise your hand. You're saying, today I receive Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you so much. I see that hand. Is there anyone else today you want to make that decision? Awesome. Church, repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Today, I give my life to Jesus, holding nothing back. I turn from sin. I follow you. Thanks to you, I'm free.